Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 321 of Her, the podcast where you're going to hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her poetry, her very healing poetry. Oh man, this is going to be just an amazing, amazing episode. Before we begin, just know that it's made possible by our wonderful friends at Smarty Pants Women's Vitamins, the delicious once-a-day gummies that contain all of the essential vitamins, minerals, and omega oils customized just for women. To learn more, hop on over to SmartyPantsVitamins.com. Now, here's your first reminder for me to click on iTunes after this episode to rate and review the show. Because really, quite frankly, I love hearing from you and your feedback is just golden. Oh, forget that. It's platinum. Oh, forget that even. It's priceless. I just love to hear from you. It's, it maintains a marvelous connection with my listening audience. So make sure to hit that rate and review. I'll give you another little reminder later on. Okay, it's time for Her. Her. The podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about her. Well, I'm, I'm just doing the happy dance right now for a lot of reasons. One is our guest is one of my dearest friends and colleagues, Dr. Norman Rosenthal. He's been on the show before. And for anyone who's ever had seasonal affective disorder, well, you can blame him. He is the world-renowned psychiatrist, public speaker, best-selling author, who is known for his innovative research and inspirational writings. Listen, he was the researcher who, born and raised in South Africa, came to America and, oh boy, was having issues with this whole seasonal change and what happens to our moods and therefore began his illustrious research career at the National Institutes of Health, um, looking at all aspects of seasonal affective disorder. And this is actually where I met uh, Norm and had a chance to be able to also um, work with him. So nothing but wonderful things. Now, clearly, um, his book, Winter Blues, which was a you know, New York Times bestseller, um, as well as Transcendence, which is all about um, uh, the issue of meditation and transcendental meditation especially. Well, guess what? Um, he wrote The Gift of Adversity to follow that up, and then I've been waiting with bated breath for this next book. And this is so unusual, I, I just couldn't wait to share this with you. It's so amazing. Um, first, Norm, welcome back to the Herb Podcast. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Pam. <laughs> well, it better be because you just wrote this book that's just absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, the name of the book, now write this down, everybody, is Poetry Rx, just like you're writing a prescription. Poetry Rx. Now, you know how I write prescriptions for lifestyle medicine habits, everything from physical activity to eating better to meditation. I go on and on. But poetry is a huge piece of this. This is just like, it blew my mind. Norm, the first time you told me you were going to write this book, I just sat back and I, 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 I was pausing, thinking, what an amazing combination to be able to have 
both poetry and healing together in the same sentence. First, tell us all why you wrote the book in the first place. Well, you know, I have always loved poems ever since I was a little boy. I was mesmerized by the sound, the musicality, the rhythms, and of course the ideas. But I just sort of collected them myself, and I found them very soothing. And uh, one, for example, when I was leaving South Africa, I was leaving behind my family. There was a poem that came my way, and I put it in the collection here, called Letter to My Mother. And it was very comforting to me because I didn't really realize how guilty I felt at leaving my parents behind. And this was just amusing, a meditation, a sort of very peaceful and gentle reflection on the mixture of feelings of leaving people behind. And it was very meaningful to me. And I recited it to myself and to anybody who would listen to me. And so it was that as life stages passed, I would find poems that seemed to be personally helpful. Um, and then it, the, the real pivot occurred when I was speaking with a friend. He called me up late last, not last night, feels like last night. Late one night, he called me up and told me he had really lost somebody very, very dear to him. And how would he manage? What was he going to do? And, you know, he was a cultured guy, and I didn't feel like just brushing him off with a cliche, you know, time heals all wounds or whatever. I just felt like something different needed to be said. And I thought, you know, losing is an art. There's an art to losing. And I said so. He said, have you read that poem? I said, no, I haven't. Which one? And he gets a book off his bookshelf and starts to read Elizabeth Bishop's One Art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. That's how it starts. And it's a magnificent poem. I printed it off. I framed it. But in the actual conversation with him, I could feel his mood lifting. And my mood lifted. It was like a miracle. He'd actually kind of given me a gift in the midst of his grief. And it had soothed him as well. And I thought, wow, is this a singularity? Is this the only poem? I doubt it. Let me go and find other poems and see if they work for other patients. And so a sort of journey began that ended up with this book. Wow. Okay. And I've got to tell you, in my own life, poetry has really, um, I have found to be exquisitely uh, clarifying for me at times when things didn't seem to make sense, um, at the same time comforting, at the same time, quite frankly, as you said, healing. No question about it. So one of the, I mean, you've got 50 poems here. First of all, tell everyone how you organize the book, because I thought that that was another piece of marvelous creativity. This wasn't a, you know, just like slapping 50 you know, poems in there and letting everybody sort of have at it. You did something really neat to make it so much easier. Why don't you explain how you did that? Yeah, well, you know, it, it evolved because I like things to be organized in a way that I can make sense of them myself and so I can explain them to others. So for every poem, I put the poem out there on the page 
you know, without any preconceptions. You read the poem, and then I discuss it, and then I give the takeaways. What are the lessons that we can pull out of these poems? And then I connect the poem with the poet. So I do that for every poem. And then I organize them into categories, you know, loving and losing. You can't talk about poetry without talking about love. It's the sine qua non of poetry. Uh, but then I go on to talk about uh, reflections on nature, which I was surprised how moving that was to me. Aspects of the human experience, a guide to living and search for meaning. And finally, the last stage of life, which is really called Into the Night, Aging and Beyond. So those are the ways in which I've organized it and made it accessible so people can really read it in a modular way if they want, or they can read it from beginning to end. It's all out there, clearly shown, so that you can go where you want to in the book. Ha! Huh. Okay, so I was... I, You know, as I began to peruse this, I'm, I, I did it in a way where I took one poem, you know, and I would uh, absorb it. I would read what you wrote about it, some of your thoughts. Um, and then I would also be intrigued by, guess what? You injected science into the book. Tell us how you did that. Well, yes, I think that, you know, the, the modern reader wants to know what science backs up various suggestions. And so, for example, wherever I would, I, I imagined I was in a session with one of my patients or one of my clients. Uh, I imagined I was there and I would be explaining uh, the science. For example, one art, which is uh, all about losing. Uh, Elizabeth Bishop, the author, had lost her parents at a very young age and felt very lonely much of her life. And I talked about the biology of loss and how we really have been uh, adapted because over the years, over the centuries, uh, we didn't all live this long and we had people dying. And if you read the lives of these poets, many of them lost parents, siblings uh, before adulthood. And then uh, once they were married and started having children of their own, many times they outlived many of their children. So life has been, as they say, nasty, brutish, and short. And uh, that is what we have evolved to deal with, and that's what poetry helps us to deal with. But wherever science can be brought into the picture, I bring science in. Uh, and other forms of literature, modern self-help books. I talk to the modern person in a way that is respectful of their intelligence and the fact that they are all reading all these things all the time and will want to know, well, how do they map to what you're saying here? I love it. So I got to tell you, here we are doing this um, uh, wonderful show together. And... Uh, there, there are some tough things going on in the world and in, in all of our challenges on a day-by-day -day, uh, basis. And just when you think you heard it all, then something else. It's almost like uh, why I barely read the news anymore. Uh, and it made me think of one of the poems in the book, Invictus, by uh, the poet 
William Ernest Henley. And it, it, it's a poem I go back to a lot for a, a lot of interesting reasons, which I'll get into, but I'd like to read it. Most importantly, I'd like you to read it. <laughs> All right. So if you've, if you've got it in front of you, and you just grab that little thing, I think it's like page 243 on my, uh, my copy here. Yes, yes, I have it right here. Mm-hmm. Go for it. I will. I love that poem, and that's such an important poem. It really speaks to resilience, yes. Yes, yes. William Ernest Henley. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Oh, that last, you know, uh, stanza just absolutely blows me away. It's the way it always has been every time I've, I've read it. Um, tell us a little bit about this poem. Well, Firstly, the poet was an amazing man. He had suffered from uh, tuberculosis of the bones, and he lost one of his legs below the knee. And in fact, um, he became the role model for Robert Louis Stevenson's Long John Silver, um, who had a peg leg, as it's called, um, a prosthesis below the knee. And Now the TB had spread to the other leg and the doctor said it had to be amputated and he said nothing doing. He was going up to the famous surgeon Lister up in Edinburgh and he was going to try his antiseptic cure and in fact it worked and he saved the leg but he was in hospital for years and many times in terrible pain. And so he learned through bitter experience that He had to be his own master and his own captain if he was going to survive. He had to run the ship himself and just persevere. And that's where this poem comes out of. He had a very hard life, but he was very successful. And this poem has been a great inspiration to such figures as Nelson Mandela, who was imprisoned in South Africa on Robben Island Fortress Prison and had this poem written, scratched on the wall of his cell and taught it to people in terms of keeping their morale up. And in fact, now there is the so-called Invictus Games, uh, the games for um, disabled people and uh, people who are challenged in various ways. And this has been their uh, aspirate, their um, This has been their absolute uh, inspiration. It's been on the masthead of the organization and of the games, and it's been such a blessing to so many people. In fact, when President Obama went to South Africa to Nelson Mandela's funeral, 
he quoted from Invictus uh, in talking about the courage and bravery of this leader of Southern Africa who really prevented a tremendous amount of bloodshed in the transition from apartheid to modern South Africa. Didn't Winston Churchill also uh, quote Invictus and other he people like him? He did. He certainly did. There is a cluster of people who quoted Invictus. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, you have a wonderful thing, and I I just absolutely, I mean, seriously, to me, ladies especially out there, listen up, this is like eating through carrot cake, you know, or or one of those 30-pound Georgetown cupcakes. You just want to do this a little bit at a time and savor. So this is one of those books where you read a poem, you read uh, Norm's beautiful uh, comments about the poem, history, um, and then the takeaways. The takeaways I have found to be amazing. Now, when you look at Invictus, what were the takeaways? Okay, we'll go to the takeaways there. And see, every poem has got its own special takeaways. The takeaways are not generic, they're customized. So here I say, in circumstances of extraordinary adversity, a poem can make a huge difference. Invictus is one such poem. When no one else is available, it can sustain your morale to remember that one person is always at hand who understands you and who has your interests first and foremost at heart, yourself. Often things may seem worse than they are, Always look for angles to supplement the help you provide yourself. A combination of independence and seeking help often works best. Often people want to help you more when they see how hard you have worked to help yourself. And indeed, I love it. In in the case of the poet, he was in hospital when Robert Louis Stevenson, who was a stranger at that time, came to visit him, and he was so amazed at this fellow's spirit that he said, you know, he, he behaved like he was a prince in a castle, not a patient in a, in a hospital with a leg, miss, half a leg missing. And after he got out of hospital, Robert Louis Stevenson was very helpful in getting him linked up with various uh, jobs and uh, became a big supporter of his. So somehow when you have the strength and courage to be your own best advocate others follow oh my god i just you know i think of people like victor frankel the same kind of thing you know um someone who was uh, extraordinarily uh resilient despite having been a holocaust survivor and um uh, obviously then went on to write um wonderful books like the meaning of life etc and i think in our day and age Norm, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I think people need to hear these kinds of words because they are being challenged. They're being challenged, you know, when you're thinking about a world with a pandemic that we're still struggling with. Uh, when we're thinking about economic struggles, uh, when we're looking at cultural shifts of incredible magnitude, all of these happening on a global level, so it's certainly not uh, limited to one country, that anything that would help elevate um, people uh, in their ability to be more resilient, to adapt and adjust, 
I think would be so helpful. Who knew you could get that from poetry? What do you think of that? Yeah, you know, I do think a lot about that because we are in a world that is depleted of all kinds of things. We don't have access to relatives. Grandparents can't get to their children. Young people can't go out and party if they want to. All these things are uh, difficult now. So even socializing, don't even think of partying. Think of just hanging out with friends. These are all or have been all very, very problematic to us. And then, of course, there's the issue of loss. People who are no longer with us, people who pass away and we can't be there. And it's a devastated economy. The people have lost jobs. And it's not just jobs, it's dreams. Uh, restaurants that have been open for decades, whose proprietors have been really devoted to them and their customers have had to close down and shutter. Uh, these are uh, tremendous losses. And where do we turn? We turn to various things. But I'm suggesting here that one thing that's right there, right in front of us, that we can turn to is poetry. I know, I just love it. And so, seriously, I'm just going to be honest with you. I just went right to the poems that hit it home with resilience um, because I really felt like this could really help people. So what about, there's there's one um, lovely uh, poem here called The Waking, and it's right after. Oh, God, um, I love that poem. I am so glad uh, that you chose it. I just and love I'll it. I'll tell you why I love it. Why? It's such tell a me. brilliant poem. It's such a brilliant poem. And what I say about this poem is that the other poems in this section all talk about external adversity that people can have. But this poem talks about a special group of people. And there are many millions of people for whom even waking up in the morning and getting the day going is a challenge. And so um, Theodore Rothke, who himself had bipolar illness, has written this very amazing villanelle. Now, a villanelle, it's a special musical kind of poem that has a special shape to it. Very, very difficult to write, and he's written this gorgeous villanelle. Well, go ahead. Let's do it. What is right. The Waking, Let's, uh, as read by Dr. Norman Rosenthal? All right, and I will just suggest to the listeners that listen for repeated sentences, because that is one feature of the villanelle, a certain sentence that comes back again and again that is particularly meaningful and nails home the lesson of the villanelle. Here it goes. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. I feel my fate in what I cannot fear. I learn by going where I have to go. We think by feeling. What is there to know? I hear my being dance from ear to ear. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. Of those so close beside me, which are you? God bless the ground. I shall walk softly there and learn by going where I have to go. Light takes the tree, but who can tell us how? The lowly worm climbs up a winding stair. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. Great nature has another thing to do to you and me, 
So take the lively air and lovely, learn by going where to go. This shaking keeps me steady. I should know what falls away is always and is near. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. I learn by going where I have to go. Wow. Whew. So what does this mean? Well, well, it's a great question, and I break it down into three very big lessons. The first is given to us by I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. Not everybody wakes up with a jump in their stride. A lot of people wake up and they are a little muzzy. Maybe they took medicine the night before. Maybe they didn't have a good night's sleep. Maybe they're depressed uh, or hungover or whatever. But a lot of us do not wake up dancing out of bed in the morning. We wake into a kind of sleepy state. So he says he takes his waking slow. Nobody wants to be rushed when they're not really feeling like jumping out of bed. I have these couples where one jumps out of bed and the other one takes a little while and doesn't really appreciate being jollied along. Um, so it, it is a sense that sometimes this is what happens, or for some people this is how you wake up. And there's an acceptance, a kind of loving acceptance that this is going to be how it is then I learn by going where I have to go. This is fascinating because in traditional psychotherapy, you figure out where you need to go and then you go. But many times in life, we go and then we learn. And uh, in many of the recovery programs from AA on down, there is the expression, insight follows action. You first act in some instances and then you understand. And this is summed up beautifully by, I learn by going where I have to go. The third lesson is, we think by feeling. What is there to know? And this is an ancient idea. It goes back to Pascal, the philosopher, who said that the heart has a reason that reasons cannot understand. Or the wonderful woman writer, the real feminist pioneer, uh, Mary Wollstonecroft, who said um, that the, the heart, uh, I, I can't exactly remember the quote, but it was that, uh, that feelings are more important. And when, we, when we think deeply, we feel, when we feel profoundly, we think deeply. That is the quote. When we feel profoundly, we think deeply. So that's what he is saying here. We think by feeling. What is there to know? A feeling, let's say you meet somebody and you've just got a creepy feeling about this person. That feeling is intelligence. That feeling is telling you something. Or if you go and apply for a job and you look around and it just doesn't feel like the place you want to work, that feeling is telling you something. So here he is really validating that we think by feeling. And so these very, very important points all come out in this very short, powerful poem. All right, go for the takeaways then, because I know everyone out there is going, okay, okay, okay. What are the takeaways? Okay, the takeaways are, if you have a hard time waking up in the morning, be sure to seek help, as it may be related to a treatable condition, 
such as a sleep disorder, depression, a neurological problem, or the effect of drugs, prescribed or non-prescribed. Regardless of the reason, start the day slowly and take things at a pace that's right for you. Sometimes taking a wise action can precede the development of insight. As people in 12-step programs say, do the next right thing. Your feelings can be an important source of information about significant things going on in your world. Respect your intuition, which may often lead you to insights much more quickly than waiting for your thinking to catch up. And finally, pay attention to mystery and wonder in the world around you and to what it can teach you. Wow. You know, I'm just laughing a little bit. Big smile, especially with that... uh you know, with the whole issue of taking it slowly in the morning, when so many people, the minute their eyes open up, they grab their iPhone, right? Their smartphone, whatever it may be. And they're reading off emails and social media and and they're off and running um, because what it does, it stirs you up. And then you have a little FOMO. What am I being left out of? Uh, and, and then you just literally uh, fall out of bed and start running, hit the gravel running. And, and what you're arguing for is, no, it's perfectly fine to just ponder, to wait, to, to inhale um, what, what your experience is like. I mean, I wake up in the morning and my, I, my eyes open up and I'm just, hell, I'm just grateful to be here still. Um, so it starts with gratitude. Then I think of the other gratitudes in my life. And, you know, in just doing that, and I know you do exactly the same thing, Norm, doesn't it just slow you down? Just to pause? Yeah, yeah. slowing yourself down. I do. I do it with meditation. I do it uh, when I'm with friends. I do it when I'm going on a walk outside. Um, these are things that I'm very grateful for. And uh, apropos that, I'm very grateful for our wonderful friendship going back all these years. It's just fantastic. So, yes, huh. I'm very grateful. And, of course, I'm a natureaholic. And so when it says great nature as another thing to do to you and me, so take the lively air, heck, any opportunity I possibly can, I do that. So, you know, go for it. Give us another just big-time favorite of yours from this magnificent book. Yes, that, that is hard. You know, it's like asked, being asked which is your favorite child. But I think that I really must read another Villanelle. We just had a Villanelle, which is The Waking. And I must read um, the one that started me off on the journey called One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, but there's also another wonderful, oh, there's so many wonderful ones, but I'm here, so let me do this one. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch and look, 
my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it might look like, write it like disaster. Ha! Huh. Wow. Whew! All right. What, how, what do you feel, Norm, when you read a poem like that? Well, you know, I feel the mixture of strength and sadness. Because, let's face it, nobody likes losing someone you love. And that's basically what this poem is all about. She's losing the person she loves. The first several stanzas are her putting a brave face on it and saying, I can lose this, I can lose that, this isn't so hard, that isn't so hard. But losing you, that's really hard but I'm going to write it down anyway. I'm going to make it happen because I have to, and I have to move on with my life. Now, there's a lovely backstory here. Um, Elizabeth Bishop was at, in her 50s probably at the time or you know, middle-aged person, and she was in love with a much younger woman. And the younger woman had said that she was going to get married. And this was devastating to Elizabeth Bishop, and that's when she wrote this poem. Well, this was a story with a happy ending. Alice, who was the woman she was in love with, actually came back and stayed with her till the end of her life. And so um, she did make it through, and they made it through as a couple. But at the time of writing, it looked very, very dismal. And she had had a very sad life, as I mentioned, with a lot of losses. So one more was not going to be easy, but she was going to do it. So the front part of the poem is is very uh, inspiring. It fills you with courage. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Even at the end, she can do it. But it's not that easy to do. Let's face it. Loss is difficult. If I may... I would love to just read another poem about loss. And this is a time of loss. Absolutely. Have but at I it. I call the chapter When Love Fades, and it's Failing and Flying by Jack Gilbert, whom I hadn't really known much about until I wrote this book. But listen to this one. Here it goes. Everyone forgets that Icarus also flew. It's the same when love comes to an end, or the marriage fails and people say they knew it was a mistake, that everybody said it wouldn't work, that she was old enough to know better, but anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Like being there by that summer ocean on the other side of the island while love was fading out of her, the stars burning so extravagantly those nights that anyone could tell you they would never last. Every morning she was asleep in my bed like a visitation, the gentleness in her like antelope 
standing in the dawn mist. Each afternoon I watched her coming back through the hot stony field after swimming, the sea light behind her and the huge sky on the other side of that, listened to her while we ate lunch. How can they say the marriage failed? Like the people who came back from Provence, when it was Provence, and said it was pretty but the food was greasy. I believe Icarus was not failing as he fell, but just coming to the end of his triumph. Whoa. Okay. So your takeaway on this one, it is not necessary to consider a relationship a failure just because it did not last. Huh. That's right. Talk to us about that. Yes. Well, I think too many people are fixated on happily ever after. But many, many couples do not live happily ever after. You could say most, even those who get married, half of them don't live happily ever after, at least not together. But somehow to hold that up as the ideal and everything else as sort of second rate is a great shame because love is worth feeling and love is worth having, even if it doesn't lead to uh, children and grandchildren and marriage and all kinds of wonderful things, which are wonderful things, by the way. But it can be transformative, and many of these poems do not lead to happily ever after, like this one. And yet, look, look at this poem. Who could say it was a failure, he said. And look at those beautiful descriptions. Obviously, he loved this woman. He saw she was falling out of love with him. But he didn't let that ruin the moment for him. He didn't take away the present by fretting about what was going to happen in the future. So I think those are really important things to bear in mind. And those are, and that's also a nice argument for mindfulness. Yes. To mm -hmm. stay in the yes, moment. Definitely. You know, um, and to be able to just, uh, you say this in your takeaways, wherever possible, try to be in the moment, even though it may be hard to do. Exactly. And and don't, you know, start doing the, the fretting and um, frittering around about what's going to happen tomorrow mm -hmm. or a week from now, mm -hmm. but just basically stay mm -hmm. there. You also said something else. Your thoughts and feelings about your relationship are generally more important than exactly. those of others. Mm -hmm. What was that about? Yeah, I think, well, I think, you know, it's always good to consider other people's opinions, but I think when it comes to love, you have to give more weight to your own feelings. Now, of course, there are all kinds of situations where people fall in love with the wrong kind of person, I have one of the chapters that is one of my favorites, which is The Heart Versus the Mind. It's Edna St. Vincent Millay, who was a great expert in love and poetry. And uh, in some of her poems there, she's talking about falling in love with the wrong kind of person or love not working out as she wanted it to. And so, you know, obviously... Love can go wrong, and that's not pleasant and should be guarded against. So I'm not just saying throw yourself heels and all into every situation. But there are many examples of 
love situations where you get a lot from it, even just the joy of feeling alive and feeling excited and feeling connected and the things that a person brings to you that you wouldn't necessarily think of yourself and things that you are left with even in relationships where people move on. So I think that poets who celebrate every aspect of life have recognized that this is an important aspect to celebrate. And uh, some of the poems do involve um, the uh, poem Lullaby, for example, is uh, a man uh, addressing his sleeping lover whose head is in his lap. He is just recognizing that they've just had an evening of um, ecstatic love and that it's also not going to last forever and it's not going to be necessarily monogamous. So, I mean, that's quite a sort of shocking thing to some people, uh, but what he is saying as a poet is this is what I'm seeing, this is what I'm feeling, and it's part of life. And we know full well that that, that is a part of the dating world. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily just a hookup. It may have been a very meaningful encounter, but it may not be forever. And I think, you know, today, uh, Norm, is, <laughs> you know, uh, People's are, people are redefining how they relate to one another. You know, you could swipe left, you could, you know, uh, and certainly with the pandemic, with our inability to even be with people other than, um, you know, obviously Zoom calls and, and back and forth, you, you really sit back and, and hit the pause button on what is a relationship anyway? You know, what What does it mean to really care about someone, to love someone? Um, I, I think that uh, this pandemic and, and the crisis that many of the crises that all of us are weathering still um, are really uh, opportunities for us to think and ponder some of this. And one of the things I love about poetry is it literally forces you, it compels you to hit that pause button and to contemplate, be thoughtful, and look at these words and what do they really mean to you? I think a lot of people are used to getting spoon-fed, you know, ideas. Um, instead of sitting back and saying, what is my interpretation of this form of art? Because poetry is a form of art. And in this case, it's a healing art. And, and, you know, weaving healing into this is, I think, just absolutely flippin' brilliant. Um, and I'm going to be recommending this to all of my fellow brethren, the men and women who are providers of, in, the, in the field of the healing arts, as well as just people, consumers out there, my wonderful Her audience, who wants to be able to have an opportunity to think deeper, to be able to smile, to be able to say, uh-huh, oh, so that's what the takeaway was. Ah, oh, let me think about this for a moment. Literally just taking the time to sit in silence and then go to that place. I think that that is fabulous, absolutely fabulous. All right, well, guess what? Uh, we're we're out of time. I, I could talk to you forever and a day for crying out loud. So, <laughs> Norm, 
I, I can't thank you enough um, for your beautiful book, Poetry Rx, how 50 inspiring poems can heal and bring joy to your life. Everyone out there, please grab this book. It will be a gift to self, let alone someone you love and want to support. Norm, thank you so much for being on the Her Podcast. Thank you, Pam. It's been a real pleasure. Magnificent. Okay, again, Dr. Norman Rosenthal, and the book is Poetry Rx. Now run on over right now to iTunes, rate and review this show because I just love it. This is nothing but fantastic. And I'm waiting to hear from you. I love your feedback because I'm Dr. Pam Peek, host of the Herb Podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peek MD. And remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on iTunes or Radio MD. Hey, thanks for listening today. Stay safe and stay well. <music>